Section 7 of the Convivio. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary J. The Convivio by Dante Alighieri. Translated by Philip H. Wicksteed. Section 7. Treatise 2, Chapters 13 through 16. Chapter 13. Now that the literal meaning has been adequately explained, we are to proceed to the allegorical and true exposition and therefore beginning again from the beginning i say that when i lost the first delight of my soul whereof mention is made above i was pierced by so great sorrow that no comfort availed me yet after a certain time my mind which was casting about to heal itself made proof since neither my own consolation nor that of others availed to fall back upon the manner which a certain disconsolate one had erst followed to console himself and i set myself to read that book of boethius not known to many wherein a captive and an exile he had consoled himself and hearing further that Tully had written another book wherein, treating of friendship, he had touched upon words of the consolation of Lelius, a man of highest excellence, on the death of Scipio his friend. I set myself to reading it, and although it was at first difficult for me to enter into their meaning, finally I entered as deeply into it as my command of Latin, and what little wit I had, enabled me to do, by which wit I already began to perceive many things as in a dream, as may be seen in the Vita Nuova and as it is wont to chance that a man goeth in search of silver and beyond his purpose findeth gold the which some hidden cause presents not i take it without divine command so i who was seeking to console myself found not only a cure for my tears but words of authors and of sciences and of books pondering upon which i judged that philosophy who was the lady of these authors of these sciences and of these books was a thing supreme and i conceived her after the fashion of a gentle lady and I might not conceive her in any attitude save that of compassion. Wherefore the sense for truth so loved to gaze upon her that I could scarce turn it away from her. And impelled by this imagination of her, I began to go where she was in very truth revealed, to wit, to the schools of the religious orders, and to the disputations of the philosophers, so that in a short time, I suppose some thirty months, I began to feel so much of her sweetness that the love of her expelled and destroyed every other thought. Wherefore, feeling myself raised from the thought of that first love even to the virtue of this, as though in amazement I opened my mouth in the utterance of the ode before us, expressing my state under the figure of other things, because rhyme in any vernacular was unworthy to speak in open terms of the lady of whom I was enamoured. Nor were the heavens so well prepared as to have easily apprehended straightforward words, nor would they have given credence to the true meaning, as they did to the fictitious. And accordingly folk did, in fact, altogether believe that I had been disposed to this love, which they did not believe of the other. I began, therefore, to say, ye who by understanding move the third heaven and since as has been said this lady was daughter of god queen of all most noble and most beauteous philosophy we are to consider who were these movers and this third heaven and first of the third heaven according to the order already observed and there is no need here to proceed dividing and expounding text by text for by turning fictitious words from their sound to their import the exposition that has already been made will adequately explain this present meaning chapter fourteen to see what is meant by the third heaven we must first consider what i mean by the word heaven taken by itself and then it will be clear how and why this third heaven was to our purpose i say that by heaven i mean sincere and by the heavens the sciences because of the three points of similarity which the heavens have with the sciences especially in connection with their order and their number wherein they seem to agree as will be seen when we treat of the word third the first point of similarity is that the one and the other revolves round a something that it does not move for each moving heaven revolves upon its own centre, which is not moved by the motion of that heaven, and in like manner each science moves around its own subject, but does not move it, 
because no science demonstrates its own subjects but presupposes it. The second point of similarity is the illuminating power of the one and of the other, for each heaven illuminates visible things, and in like manner each science illuminates intelligible things. And the third point of similarity is that they infuse perfection into things that are duly disposed, of which infusion, so far as the first perfection, to wit substantial generation, is concerned, all philosophers agree that the heavens are the cause, although they lay it down in different ways, some attributing it to the movers, as Plato, Avicenna, and Algazel, some to the stars themselves, especially in the case of human souls, as Socrates and Plato, and Dionysius, and the Academician, and some to celestial virtue, which is in the natural heat of the seed, as Aristotle and the other peripatetics, and in like manner the sciences are the cause in us of the infusion of the second perfection, by the habit of which we can speculate concerning the truth, which is our distinguishing perfection, as saith the philosopher in the sixth of the Ethics, when he says that truth is the good of the intellect. Because of these, together with many other points of similarity, science may be called heaven. We are now to examine why the third heaven is mentioned, whereto we must needs consider comparison that holds between the order of the heavens and that of the sciences. As was narrated above, then, the seven heavens that are first with respect to us are those of the planets. Next come two moving heavens above them, and one above them all, which is quiet. To the seven first correspond the seven sciences of the trivium and of the quadrivium, to wit, grammar, dialect, rhetoric, arithmetic, music, geometry, and astrology. To the eighth, to wit, the starry sphere, answers natural science, which is called physics, and first science, which is called metaphysics. To the ninth sphere answers moral science, and to the quiet heaven answers divine science, which is called theology. And the reason that all this is so must be briefly inspected. I say that the heaven of the moon is like grammar, as being comparable to it. For if the moon be rightly examined, two special things are perceived in her which are not perceived in the other stars. The one is the shadow upon which is not else than the rarity of her substance, whereon the rays of the sun may not be stayed and thrown back, as from her other parts. The other is the variation of her luminosity, which now shines from the one side and now from the other, according as the sun looks upon her. And these two properties grammar possesses, for because of its infinity the rays of reason cannot be arrested, especially in the direction of words, and it shines now on this side, now on that, in so far as certain words, certain declensions, certain constructions are now in use, which were not of old, and many once were, which shall be again, as Horace says in the beginning of his poesy, when he says, Many words shall be born again, which have now fallen, and the rest. And the heaven of Mercury may be compared to dialectic in virtue of two special properties, for Mercury is the smallest star of heaven, for the magnitude of his diameter is not more than two hundred and thirty-two miles, as Alphraganus states it, saying that it is one twenty-eighth part of the diameter of the earth, which is six thousand five hundred miles. The other special property is that its orbit is more veiled by the rays of the sun than that of any other star. And these two properties belong to dialectic, for dialectic is smaller in its body than any other science, for it is completely constructed and terminated in so much of text as is contained in the old art and in the new, and its orbit is more veiled than that of any other science, inasmuch as it proceeds with more sophisticated arguments and more disputable than any other. And the heaven of Venus may be compared to rhetoric because of two special properties. The one is the brightness of her aspect, which is sweeter to look upon than any other star. The other is her appearing now at morn and now at even. And these two properties characterize rhetoric, for rhetoric is the sweetest of all the other sciences, since this is what it chiefly aims at. It appears at morn when the rhetorician speaks before the face of his hearer. It appears at even that is, from behind, when the rhetorician discurses through writing, from the distant side. And the heaven of the sun may be compared to arithmetic, because of two special properties. The one is that all the other stars are informed by his light, the other that the eye may not look on him. 
and these two properties are seen in arithmetic, for by its light all the sciences are lightened, for all their subjects are considered under some numerical aspect, and in the consideration of them there is always a numerical process. As in natural science, mobile matter is the subject, which mobile matter has in itself the principle of continuity, and this has in itself the principle of infinite number. And as for the speculations of natural science, they are chiefly concerned with the principles of natural things, which are three, to wit, material, privation, and form, in which we see that there is not only number collectively, but there is also number in each one severally if we consider subtly. Wherefore Pythagoras, as Aristotle says in the first of the Metaphysics, laid down even and odd as the principles of natural things, considering all things to be number. The second property of the sun is also seen in number, with which arithmetic is concerned, for the eye of the intellect may not look upon it, because the number considered in itself is infinite, and such we may not understand. And the heaven of Mars may be compared to music by two properties. The one is the special beauty of its relation to the others. For if we count the revolving heavens, whether we begin from the lowest or the highest, this same heaven of Mars is the fifth. And so it is half-way between every pair, that is to say, the two first, the two second, the two third, the two fourth. The second is that this same Mars drieth and burneth things, because his heat is like to the heat of fire. And this is why he appeareth enkindled in color, sometimes more and sometimes less, according to the thickness and rarity of the vapors which follow him, which vapors often blaze up of themselves, as is established in the first of the meteorics. And therefore Abu Masar says that the kindling of these vapors signifies the death of kings and transmutation of kingdoms, because they are effects of the lordship of Mars. And therefore Seneca says that at the death of the Emperor Augustus he saw aloft a globe of fire. It in Florence at the beginning of its ruin was seen in the air in the figure of a cross a great quantity of these vapors that follow the star of Mars. And these two properties are found in music, which all consist in relations, as we perceive in harmonized words and in tunes, wherefrom the resulting harmony is the sweeter in proportion as the relation is more beauteous. Which relation is the chiefest beauty in that science, because this is what it chiefly aims at. Moreover, music so draweth to itself the spirits of men, which are in principle, as though vapours of the heart, that they well nigh cease from all operation, so united is the soul when it hears it. And so does the virtue of all of them, as it were, run to the spirit of sense, which receiveth the sound. And the heaven of Jove may be compared to geometry for two special properties. The one is that it moveth between two heavens repugnant to its own fair temperance, to wit that of Mars and that of Saturn. Wherefore Ptolemy saith, in the book I have cited, that Jove is a star of temperate composition betwixt the cold of Saturn and the heat of Mars. The other is that he shows white among the stars, as though of silver, and these things characterize the science of geometry. Geometry moves between two things repugnant to itself, to wit the point and the circle, and I use circle in the larger sense of everything round, whether body or surface. For according to Euclid, the point is its beginning, and according to what he says, the circle is its most perfect figure, which must, therefore, needs have the nature of an end, so that geometry moves between the point and the circle as between its beginning and its end. And these two are repugnant to its certainty, for the point, because of its indivisibility, cannot be measured, and the circle, because of its curve, is impossible to square perfectly, and therefore is impossible to measure exactly. And moreover, geometry is supremely white, in so far as it is without taint of error, and is most certain both in itself and in its handmaid, which is called perspective. And the heaven of Saturn has two properties by which it may be compared to astrology. The one is the slowness of its movement through the twelve signs, for its orbit needs the time of twenty-nine years and more, according to the writings of astrologers. The other is that it is exalted above all the other planets. These two properties characterize astrology, for in completing its circle, that is to say, in learning it, a most long space of time revolves, both because of its demonstrations, 
which are more than those of any other of the above-named sciences, and because of the observation which is needed rightly to judge it. And further, it is more exalted than all the rest, because, as Aristotle says in the beginning of the soul, a science is exalted in nobility by the nobleness of its subject-matter and by its certainty. And this, more than any of the above-mentioned, is noble and exalted by the nobility and exaltation of its subject-matter, which concerns the movement of heaven. And it is exalted and ennobled by its certainty, which is without any flaw, being that it cometh from the most perfect and regular principle. And if any suppose that there be a flaw in it, it is not on its side, but, as Ptolemy says, it is because of our negligence, and there too should it be imputed. Chapter 15 After the comparisons made concerning the seven first heavens, we are to proceed, as more than once declared, to the others, which are three. I say that the starry heaven may be compared to physics because of three properties, and to metaphysics because of three others, for it displays to us two visible objects, to wit the multitude of stars in the Milky Way, which is that white circle which the vulgar call St. Jacob's Way, and it reveals one of its poles to us, and conceals the other from us, and it reveals one only motion to us, from east to west, and the other which it makes from west to east, it well nigh conceals from us. Wherefore, in due order, we are to consider first its comparison with physics, and then with metaphysics. I say that the starry heaven reveals a multitude of stars to us, for, according to the observation of the sages of Egypt, they reckon, inclusive of the extremest star which appears to them in the south, a thousand and twenty-two separate stars, and it is of them that I am speaking, and herein it hath the greatest resemblance to physics, if we subtly consider these three numbers, to wit, two, twenty, and a thousand, for by two we understand local movement, which is of necessity from one point to another, and by twenty is signified movement by modification, for since after ten we can only proceed by modifying ten itself, by means of the other nine, and of itself, the most elegant modification it receives being its own modification by itself, and since the first which it receives is twenty, it is fitting that the said movement should be signified by this number. And by a thousand is signified the movement of growth, for this thousand is the highest number that has a name of its own, and there can be no further growth save by multiplying it. And physics manifests these three movements only, as is proved in the fifth of the fundamental treatise about it. And because of the Milky Way this heaven hath great likeness to metaphysics, wherefore we are to know that concerning this Milky Way philosophers have held diverse opinions. For the Pythagoreans said that once upon a time the sun strayed in his course, and passing through other portions not suited to his heat scorched the place along which he passed, and this appearance of scorching was left there. And I believe that they were moved there too by the fable of Phaeton, which Ovid tells in the beginning of the second of the Metamorphoses. Others, of whom were Anaxagoras and Democritus, said that it was caused by the light of the sun reflected in this part, and these opinions they support by arguments to prove them. What Aristotle may have said on this point cannot be rightly known, because his opinion does not appear the same in one translation as in the other, and I suppose there must have been a mistake made by the translators, for in the new he seems to say that it is a congregation of vapours beneath the stars of that region which ever draw them up, and this doth not seem to set forth a true cause. In the old he says that the Milky Way is not else than a multitude of fixed stars, in that region so small that from here below we may not distinguish them, though they produce the appearance of that glow which we call the Milky Way, and it may be that the heaven in that region is denser, and therefore arrests and throws back the light, and this opinion seems to be shared with Aristotle, by Avicenna and Ptolemy. Wherefore, inasmuch as the Milky Way is an effect of those stars which we may not see, save that we are aware of these things by their effect, and metaphysics treats of the primal existences, which, in like manner, we may not understand save by their effects, it is manifest that the starry heaven hath great similitude to metaphysics. 
Further, the pole that we see signifies the things of sense, of which, taken in their full compass, physics treat, and the pole that we see not signifies things that are immaterial and are not sensible, whereof metaphysics treats, and therefore the said heaven hath great similitude to the one science and to the other. Further, by its two movements it signifies these two sciences, for by the movement wherewith it revolveth day by day, and maketh a fresh return from point to point, it signifieth the corruptible things of nature, which day by day complete their course, and their material changeth from form to form, and of these physics treats. And by the almost insensible movement which it makes from east to west, at the rate of a degree in a hundred years, it signifieth the incorruptible things which had of God a created beginning, and shall have no end. And of these metaphysics treats. And this is why I say that this movement signifieth them, because the circulation in question had a beginning, and shall have no end. For the end of a circulation is returning to one identical point, and this heaven shall never return to such with reference to this movement. For since the beginning of the world it has revolved little more than one-sixth part, and we are already in the final age of the world, and are verily awaiting the consummation of the celestial movement. And so it is manifest that the starry heaven, because of many properties, may be compared to physics and to metaphysics. The crystalline heaven, which has been counted above as the prima mobile, has very manifest comparison with moral philosophy, because, as Thomas, on the second of the ethics, says, it disposes us rightly for other sciences. For, as says the philosopher in the fifth of the ethics, legal justice regulates the sciences with a view to learning, and commands them to be learnt and taught, that they be not forsaken, and so doth the said heaven regulate with its movement the daily revolution of all the others, whereby every day they all receive from above the virtue of all their parts. For if the revolution of this heaven did not thus regulate the same, little of their virtue would come down here, and little sight of them. Wherefore, suppose it were possible for this ninth heaven not to move, in any given place on earth, a third part of the heaven, would never yet have been seen, and Saturn would be fourteen years and a half concealed from any given place on the earth, and Jove would be concealed for six years, and Mars about a year, and the sun one hundred and eighty-two days and fourteen hours, I say days to signify the length of time which so many days measure, and Venus and Mercury would be concealed and revealed about like the sun, and the moon for fourteen days and a half would be hidden from all folk. Of a truth there would be no generation here below, nor life of animal nor plant. Night would not be, nor day, nor week, nor month, nor year, but all the universe would be disordered, and the movement of the other heaven would be in vain. And not otherwise were moral philosophy to cease, the other sciences would be hidden a certain space, and there would be no generation, nor life, nor felicity, and in vain would the other sciences have been written down and discovered of old, whereby it is right clear that this heaven may be compared to moral philosophy. Further, the Empyrean heaven, in virtue of its peace, is like the divine science, which is full of all peace, which suffereth not any strife of opinions, or of sophistical arguments, because of the most excellent certainty of its subject-matter, which is God. And of it saith he himself unto his disciples, My peace I give unto you, my peace I leave with you, giving and leaving them his teaching, which is this science whereof I speak. Of her saith Solomon, Sixty are the queens, and eighty are the concubines and of the young maidens there is no number. One is my dove, and my perfect one. All the sciences he calls queens, and paramours, and handmaidens, and this he calls dove, because it is without taint of strife, and this he calls perfect, because it makes us see the truth perfectly, wherein our soul is quieted. And so this comparison of the heavens and the sciences being expounded, we may perceive that by the third heaven I mean rhetoric, which resembles the third heaven as appears above. Chapter 16 in virtue of the similitudes now expounded, it may be seen who are those movers whom I address, which move this heaven, 
such as Boethius and Tully, who with the sweetness of their discourse set me upon the way of love as related above, that is to say, devotion to this most gentle lady philosophy, with the rays of their star, which is the scripture that concerns her. For in every science scripture is a star, full charged with light which showeth forth that science. And when this is understood we may see the true meaning of the first verse of the ode before us, by means of the fictitious and literal exposition. And by means of this same exposition we may adequately understand the second verse, up to the place where it says, He makes me gaze upon a lady, where you are to know that this lady is philosophy, who in truth is a lady full of sweetness, adorned with honor, wondrous in wisdom, glorious in freedom, as in the third treatise, where her nobleness will be dealt with, shall be made manifest. And in the place where it says, Who would behold salvation, let him look upon this lady's eyes. The eyes of this lady are her demonstration, the which, when turned upon the eyes of the intellect, enamour that soul which is free in its conditions. O oh, most sweet and unutterable looks, of a sudden ravishing the human mind, which appear in the demonstrations in the eyes of philosophy when she discurses to her lovers. Verily in you is the salvation whereby whoso looketh on you is blessed, and saved from the death of ignorance and of vice. Where it says, If he fear not the anguish of sighings, there must be understood, if he fear not the toil of study, and the strife of perplexities which rise in manifold fashion from the beginning of the glances of this lady. And then, as her light continueth, fall away like morning clouds from the face of the sun. In the intellect that hath become her familiar remains free and full of certainty, even as is the air purged, enlightened by the midday rays. The third verse, likewise, may be understood by the literal exposition up to where it says, The soul wails. Here we must give good heed to a certain moral which may be noted in these words, namely, that a man ought not, because of a greater friend, to forget the services received from the lesser. But if it really behoves him to follow the one and leave the other, when he follows the better, the other is not to be abandoned without some fitting lamentation, wherein he giveth cause to the one he followeth of all the greater love. Then, when it saith, Of my eyes, it means not else, save that mighty was the hour when the first demonstration of this lady entered into the eyes of my intellect, which was the most immediate cause of this enamorment. And where it saith, My peers, souls are meant that are free from wretched and vile delights, and from the ways of the vulgar, endowed with intellect and memory. And then it saith, Slays, and then saith, Am slain, which seems counter to what was said above of this lady's saving power. And therefore be it known that here one of the sides is speaking, and there the other, which two contend diversely, according as was expounded above. Wherefore it is no marvel if the one says yea, and the other nay, if it be rightly noted which is declining and which ascending. Then in the fourth verse, where it says, A little spirit of love, it means a thought which springs from my study. Wherefore be it known that by love in this allegory is always meant that very study which is the application of the mind enamoured of a thing to that thing itself. Then, when it saith, Thou shalt see adornment of such lofty miracles, it declares that through her shall be perceived the adornments of the miracles, and it says true, for the adornment of marvels is the perception of the causes of them, which is what she demonstrates, as the philosopher appears to feel in the beginning of the metaphysics, when he says that by perceiving these adornments men begin to be enamoured of this lady. And of this word, to wit, marvel, there will be fuller discourse in the following treatise. All the rest of this ode which follows is adequately explained by the other exposition. And so, at the close of this second treatise, I declare and affirm that the lady of whom I was enamoured after my first love was the most fair and noble daughter of the Emperor of the Universe, to whom Pythagoras gave the name of philosophy. And here ends the second treatise, which is served as the first course. End of section 7